This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. This month, I've picked four cases from listener suggestions. To prove that I keep all suggestions I've been sent... This one was sent to me by a listener through the Facebook page quite some time ago. I recalled hearing about this case in the past, but hadn't thought to include it in a series until Leslie Weeby reminded me of it in her message to me. Thanks, Leslie. In 2002, a vacationing couple went missing from an Ocean City, Maryland beach town. When their remains were discovered, it would shock the public to find out that a young couple was responsible for their demise as would the discovery that the murders had been committed solely for the thrill of attempting to get away with the crime. This is the case of the killer couple, Benjamin and Erica Seifert. On May 31, 2002, around midnight, an Ocean City, Maryland police unit responded to a burglar alarm that had been activated at a Hooters restaurant and merchandise store on 122nd Street. When they arrived, they observed a Jeep Cherokee backed up to the rear entrance of the store. A man and a woman were exiting with their arms filled with Hooters merchandise, shirts, sweatshirts, hats, license plate frames, and the like. They were placing the stolen merchandise in the back of the Jeep when the police approached. The couple was young and tan. She was petite with curly brown hair. He was fit and muscular. Both were clearly intoxicated. They looked like any other young couple vacationing in the seaside resort town. The cops placed them both in handcuffs and began searching them. The male, identified as 23-year-old Benjamin Adam Seifert, called BJ, was found to have a 9mm handgun and a knife on him. The female, Erica Elaine Seifert, also 23, was discovered to have a loaded 357 Magnum revolver tucked into the waistband of her jeans. She was also carrying a knife. Inside their vehicle, police found another gun, a 45 caliber weapon, as well as ski masks, flex cuffs, and tape. They were placed under arrest for burglary. Before they were put in squad cars to be taken to jail, Erica told an officer that she suffered from anxiety attacks and needed her medication that was located in the car. She said she was on two different medications that could be found in a brown leather pouch inside her purse. But when the officer found only one prescription bottle in her bag, he continued to search in another interior zippered pouch. There, he came upon four spent 357 Magnum shell casings and one live round. He also found two identification cards belonging to people other than the Seifritz. As he took a closer look, he saw that the identification cards belonged to a Martha Marjane Crutchley and Joshua Ford. Martha Crutchley and her boyfriend, Joshua Ford, had gone missing from Ocean City almost a week earlier. Alarm bells went off, and the officers wondered what this pair of young burglars may know about the disappearance of the other couple. They took them into the station to be questioned. At the same time, fearing for the safety of the missing couple, officers sent a unit to conduct a search of the Seifert's Ocean City condominium. When investigators entered the Seifert's apartment, Located on the top floor of a high-rise condominium building near the beach, 
they first observed a glass dining table with photographs placed in a stack on top. Next to the photographs, two bullets also lay on the table. The photos were group shots of the Seifritz, with Martha Crutchley and Joshua Ford. An envelope from the photo developing lab showed that the film had been taken in for processing just after the couple had disappeared on May 26th. Now investigators decided to bring in crime scene technicians to go over the residence for any evidence of the missing couple. They also needed to find out just how B.J. and Erica Seifert had come into contact with the missing couple and if they knew their whereabouts. Martha Crutchley, known as Jeannie, was a 51-year-old insurance company executive from Fairfax, Virginia. She met 32-year-old mortgage banker Joshua Ford at a company party, and they immediately hit it off. They were both divorced when they met. They dated for two years before moving in together in Fairfax. Despite the age difference, the two were very compatible. They enjoyed working around the house, gardening, and just spending time together in their newly formed domestic bliss. Jeannie was a vivacious blonde, a natural beauty, and looked years younger than her age. Joshua was fun-loving, responsible, and boyishly handsome. Those who were acquainted with the couple knew them to be very much in love and inseparable. On Memorial Day weekend 2002, they traveled together to Ocean City, where they had rented a condo for the long holiday weekend. They planned to spend time on the beach during the day and hit the nightclubs at night for a much-needed vacation. On the evening of Saturday, May 25th, the couple had already spent time at one nightclub and returned to their condo that was in walking distance before boarding a city bus to make the trip to a second club. They took just what they needed for the night out before boarding the bus. While on the short ride to the popular bar Secrets, they struck up a conversation with two other riders, Anne Carlino and Jeff Heisey, who were also on their way to the club. The bus made another stop, and a young couple began to board. They did not have the exact change needed for the fare, and Josh Ford offered to pay it for them. While thanking him, they introduced themselves as B.J. and Erica Seifert. They were also on their way to Secrets, and B.J. offered to buy them a drink in repayment when they arrived. B.J. and Erica spent the evening hanging out at the bar with Josh, Jeannie, and the other two bus riders, Ann and Jeff. At some point, Ann and Jeff took their leave, and only the foursome was left, drinking and socializing. A little while before closing time, they left the bar together. That was the last anyone saw or heard from Josh and Jeannie. On Tuesday, May 28th, when Jeannie failed to return to work as scheduled, one of her co-workers called the Fairfax Police Department to report her missing. Jeannie almost never missed work and would not have failed to call if she was going to be out. Her friends and co-workers knew right away that something wasn't right. Fairfax Police then contacted the Ocean City Police who sent a unit to try and make contact with the couple at the condominium they had rented for the weekend. They found Jeannie's car still sitting in the parking lot. It looked like it hadn't been moved in a few days. The sand from the nearby beach had accumulated on its exterior. Inside the condo, police found the couple's car keys, camera, and other belongings. It looked as if they had just stepped out with everything left in place. Flyers were distributed, and announcements were made about the missing couple, but there was no sign of either of them in Ocean City or anywhere else. 
Erica Seifert grew up in Pennsylvania. She was the only child of Mitch Grace, a successful contractor, and Cookie, a former nurse. Erica excelled in school as well as in sports and went on to attend Mary Washington College, where she was a star point guard for the women's basketball team. She graduated with honors in degrees in history and political science. She had plans to continue on to law school when she met Benjamin Seifert during her last year of college. Benjamin, or BJ, was raised in Minnesota and hadn't done well in school. After graduating, he enlisted in the Navy. He thrived in the military and completed the grueling training required to be part of the elite Navy SEAL team in 1997. He and Erica married in 1999, and both of their families noticed the change in them after they became a couple. Erica gave up her dream of attending law school, and BJ stopped seeing his family. They both seem wrapped up solely in each other. While this might be typical of young love, BJ's behavior also began affecting his career in the Navy. He was court-martialed several times for offenses from being absent without leave to insubordination. He was eventually released from service on a bad conduct discharge. BJ and Erica were just floating aimlessly for a time, but their parents helped the couple finance a business venture. For some time, Erica had kept scrapbooks where she documented her memories and accomplishments. From high school and college, and even to when she began dating BJ, she took photos and kept mementos, which she would paste into numerous scrapbooks. With her parents' help, she and BJ opened up a store dedicated to the hobby of scrapbooking in Altoona, Pennsylvania, which they named Memory Lane. But what Erica's parents didn't know was that their daughter was beginning to live an extreme lifestyle with her new husband. Some things were known to outsiders. How Erica had taken to owning exotic pets like snakes, for example. Other things were kept just between the two of them, like their increased use of drugs and the fact that they had begun to burglarize nearby businesses. At first, they began to break into stores and businesses located near their scrapbook store. They'd enter at night and take whatever struck their fancy. This was odd, because Erica and BJ had enough money to purchase most of the things they stole. No, it wasn't about need or really even want. It was simply for the thrill of doing something illegal and not getting caught. Perhaps this started as something BJ needed, now living a mundane life, managing a scrapbooking store of all things. His life was now a far cry from the exciting and adrenaline-filled days of being a Navy SEAL. Perhaps he started to get a rush from these criminal activities, and to continue to be part of his life, Erica joined in willingly. BJ had always wanted to be a badass. Becoming a Navy SEAL had filled part of that need for a time. But rule-following, perhaps, wasn't in his nature. The military requires strict discipline from its members, and it seems BJ grew bored of these restrictions. Once he was drummed out of the service, BJ had to seek out other ways to get his adrenaline fix. So he started committing crimes. The burglaries came first. He also loved guns and kept one on him almost at all times. He also liked knives. Both he and Erica carried weapons. BJ also had his chest tattooed with a swastika to complete his new charming persona. Erica, it seems, was agreeable with all of this. She took lots of pictures of her husband and herself, trying to look cool. He shirtless showing his tattoos. She in cut-off shorts and bikini tops with various piercings. 
Sometimes they took photos with the snakes and or their weapons. They were a good-looking couple, trim and tan, but truth be told, they resembled each other so closely in appearance they could have been brother and sister. That was perhaps part of their narcissistic attraction. But burglarizing small businesses must have bored the couple after a while because they now begin to play a more dangerous game, one that would turn deadly that fateful Memorial Day weekend of 2002. Investigators went to the penthouse condominium that Benjamin and Erica Seifert were occupying in Ocean City. They found pictures of the Seiferts and the missing couple that had been taken at Secrets nightclub the night before they disappeared. They also found bullets that had been fired from a 357 Magnum. They called in crime scene technicians to search the apartment for any sign of Joshua Ford and Jeannie Crutchley. The place had obviously been cleaned, but blood evidence was found in the master bathroom. Blood stains were found on top of the bathroom counter, on the underside of the countertop, on the floor, on the floor under the vanity, on the backside of the bottom drawer of the vanity, under the mirror, under the baseboard, under the hot tub faucet, on the hot tub step, on a sailboat candle holder on the hot tub, on the window, and in the shower. Not a very thorough cleaning job, even though there was a large collection of used cleaning products found in the floor next to the bathroom door. There was also a bullet hole found in the back wall of the bathroom. The bathroom walls had been recently painted. Evidence of Josh and Jeannie's presence in the condo was also found. A key to the rented condominium was found on a table. More chilling, the blood evidence found in the bathroom was matched by DNA to both Jeannie Crutchley and Joshua Ford. The bullets found on the table were determined to have been fired from the 357 Magnum found on Erica when she was arrested for the burglary. One of the spent bullets had Josh's blood and tissue on it, and a medical examiner would later say that it had almost certainly passed through his body, evidence tying Erica, at least, to the shooting of Joshua Ford. Both Erica and B.J. Seifert were held in jail on the burglary charge while detectives continued to investigate their role in the disappearance of Josh and Jeannie. They turned up even more photos of B.J. and Erica. It seems that Erica took photographs of everything the couple did together to include in her scrapbooks. One photo showed Erica wearing a bikini, her husband's arm around her. She is pictured wearing a long chain with a silver ring hanging from it. Pictures of Josh and Jeannie, taken at Secrets Nightclub the last night they were seen, show Josh wearing the same ring on his finger. Detectives found the silver ring in Erica's purse and tested it for evidence. Blood from both Josh and Jeannie would be found still caked on the ring. It seems that Erica, ever the scrapbooker, liked to keep mementos, including the couple's ID cards, Joshua's ring, and spent bullets. Detectives now returned to Erica with all the evidence they had thus collected, tying her and her husband to the missing couple. It didn't take long for her to confess revealing a story that would shock and horrify investigators. On May 25th, Erica and BJ met Josh and Jeannie on the bus and found they were both heading to Secrets nightclub. The two couples, along with another man and woman, spent time together drinking at the club that evening. After the third couple left, the Seiferts asked Josh and Jeannie if they wanted to accompany them to their penthouse condo where they could keep the party going. 
they agreed and left the bar with the Seifritz. After a time of more drinking at the condo, Erica said she couldn't find her purse. She told her husband that her purse was missing, and Josh and Jeannie began helping to look around the apartment for the missing bag. All of a sudden, according to Erica, BJ pulled out a gun and accused the other couple of stealing Erica's purse. They swore they hadn't, and BJ, with the gun pointed at them, demanded that they prove it. Take off your clothes, he shouted at them, so I can see if you're hiding anything on you. They told him he was being crazy. They didn't have anything. But as BJ continued to become angrier and more threatening, they decided to do as he said. But even with their clothes off, and obviously not in possession of any stolen items, BJ continued to threaten them. Josh broke away, grabbing Jeannie and made a dash for the bathroom, where he locked them inside and tried to appeal to the couple to let them go. A handprint of Josh's was found on the window, where he perhaps tried to find a way to escape. But while there was a small balcony that ran the length of the apartment, they were over 20 floors up, and there was nowhere else to go. BJ fired his gun through the bathroom door, striking Josh. Erica said she stood in terror in the living room and heard three more shots fired before BJ returned to tell her that they were dead. Okay, this was not the complete and true account of what happened, and I'll tell you how we know. After Erica gave her confession implicating BJ in the murders of Josh and Jeannie, she was offered a deal. If she agreed to cooperate with the state in the prosecution of BJ and further agreed to testify truthfully on behalf of the state at his trial, they would not seek a sentence of death or life without parole against her. The caveat being that she was to provide, quote, reliable information to the state, end quote. They needed her to tell them how the bodies of Martha Crutchley and Joshua Ford were disposed of and where the remains could be found. After Erica shared this information with detectives, she would be subjected to a polygraph examination, and if she tested not deceptive on all the questions related to the homicides, the state would not prosecute her for the homicide charges. During her pre-polygraph interview with a Secret Service special agent who was sent to the Ocean City Police Department to administer the test, Erica went into great detail about the events before, during, and after the murders. She gave statements incriminating herself which made it clear that she had been deceptive in her earlier statements to investigators. Because of this, the polygraph examination was canceled and the deal was amended. In return for her cooperation in locating the bodies of the victims, the state would not seek the death penalty. Here's the full version of events as they unfolded in the early morning hours of May 26. Both couples decided to continue the party at the Seifert's condominium, leaving the club at 1.30 a.m., they took a bus to the Atlantis, where Josh and Jeannie were staying, to pick up swimsuits, and then the four of them walked on the beach to the Seifert's nearby condominium. Erica stated that Joshua, Jeannie, and BJ stayed on the beach and that she went into the condominium to get beers for everyone. Once inside the Seifert's penthouse unit, she noticed that her purse was on the back of the couch and not where she had originally put it. She stated that her jewelry and pills were missing, so she called 911. Worcester 911, did an emergency? Yes, I have an emergency at my apartment. Um, there are people in my house who I don't know, and my purse is suddenly missing, and I'm afraid I'm going to have a robbery here. Okay, people in your apartment at this time? Yes. I'll connect you to the police. Stay on the line. Hey. What? I'm 
I'm upstairs in a bedroom where they don't know where I am. Okay, I'll connect you to the police. You can tell them, okay? Okay. Huh? According to Erica, she hung up on 911 when Joshua came upstairs. She then yelled for BJ to come up. Erica and BJ then accused Joshua and Jeannie of taking their things. BJ then grabbed Erica's gun and pointed it at the couple. Erica stated that when BJ took the gun, she knew he was going to kill them. BJ told them to take off their clothes. The victims complied and, according to Erica, asked why they were doing this, explaining that they did not take any of the Seifert's things. According to Erica, BJ continued to point the gun at the victims and told them to get in the bathroom. Joshua and Jeannie locked the door behind them and were yelling and pleading for their lives. Erica stated that BJ asked her, I'm supposed to fucking waste them? Cool? I want to point out two odd things from this first part of Erica's confession. First, why did she call 911? Did she really think her things had been stolen? Was this just part of the game they were playing to terrorize the couple? Did they believe the couple had stolen from them and then took it too far? In BJ's statement to Erica, he said it as a question, as if he was asking her if he should kill them. Was this planned? Had they talked about doing something like this and then decided in the moment to carry out a murder? It seems he was making sure Erica was on board with committing murder. She didn't say she ever objected or told him to stop and let them go. On to the rest of the account, according to Erica. Erica said that Josh and Jeannie's pleading was getting loud, and she, quote, just wanted them to shut up, unquote. She was afraid neighbors would hear and call the police. She could hear Jeannie yelling, help me, help me, help me, and banging against the glass on the bathroom window. Josh was pounding on the bathroom door and yelling, why are you doing this, over and over. She told BJ to, quote, just fucking do it. You got them naked, you put a gun to their heads, just do it, unquote. Immediately after she made this statement in her interview, she stopped for a minute and said, now you have me on murder. She was asked what she meant when she told BJ to just do it, and she said, I meant just kill them. I knew he wanted to. BJ fired the gun into the bathroom door and then kicked it open. She described the kick as being so hard that BJ fell backwards. The bathroom door flew open and lodged itself in the wall. He entered the bathroom, and Erica saw Josh fall to the right side of the bathroom against a closet. He had been shot. He was still yelling, Why are you doing this? She then watched as BJ shot him in the head. Erica said she wet her pants and went to go sit on the edge of the bed, to, quote, wait for it to be over. She said she heard two more shots close together, about five seconds, and then BJ came out, flexing his muscles and covered in blood. It was obvious to her that he'd smeared the blood on himself. He called her into the bathroom. He told her, quote, Baby, open your knife like I taught you. Get down there and check her to see if she's dead. Get down there and make sure, unquote. Jeannie was huddled in the fetal position under the vanity and Erica told the agent that she began to cut on her body. There was a lot of blood around Jeannie on the floor, and it got on Erica's clothes as she kneeled over her. Erica showed investigators how she cut the right side of Jeannie's abdomen above her right hip. She said she was surprised how much pressure it took to cut the skin, since she had never cut someone before. I cut her twice, like this, Erica demonstrated. <laughs> 
After making the statement about cutting her twice, she stopped again and said, Now you have me on murder. When asked whether Jeannie was dead or alive when she cut her, Erica said she did not know, but thought she was probably dead. When asked, she said she had not checked for signs of life before cutting her. Now she went into detail about the disposing of the bodies. There was no way to get the bodies out of the high-rise building without being seen, so they came up with a plan. They cut up the bodies in the bathroom and placed the body parts in black plastic garbage bags. BJ placed these into his Navy kit bags. They then drove about a dozen miles away, crossing the border into Delaware, before throwing the bags in a grocery store dumpster. While Erica tried to make it seem as if BJ was the one who was responsible for the escalation of a situation that led to murder, prosecutors believed that she was equally guilty in taking part in the homicides. For one thing, the gun found to be the murder weapon was discovered on her when she was arrested. BJ had another gun, a 9mm, on him. While this is not proof that she fired the weapon, prosecutors would claim at trial that both BJ and Erica had fired the weapon, and both would be charged with murder. They also took into account how Erica Seifert behaved immediately following the murders. On Tuesday, May 28th, just two days later, Erica and BJ went shopping together at an outlet mall, and Erica got a new tattoo that day. The prosecution would point out that the snake she had inked on her right side was located in the same area of the body she'd told the investigators that she'd cut Jeannie Crutchley with a knife. They believed it was another way she commemorated the murders, along with wearing Joshua Ford's ring on a chain around her neck. That same day, the pair went to a Home Depot store to purchase items needed to replace the kicked-in bathroom door and to repaint the walls in the bathroom. While there, Erica talked to a woman who testified to their exchange at trial. Erica was carrying a triangular piece of wood that she brought to find matching material. She was with her husband in the store. The witness testified that Erica told her, Do you believe that's all that's left of my door? The woman joked, That must have been some party. Erica laughed and responded, I guess you could call it that. And then another witness came forward who helped solidify the prosecution's claim that BJ and Erica were in cahoots in playing their deadly game. A woman named Melissa Sealing came forward to tell investigators that on May 29th, just three days after the murders, she met her friend Justin Todd Wright, who was at a bar drinking with the Seifritz. Together, the four visited a couple more bars that night. Melissa did not drink, but said the other three did and were intoxicated. At the end of the night, Melissa thought that BJ was too drunk to drive, so she offered to drive them to their condo. Once there, BJ asked Melissa and Todd to help him get Erica up to the apartment, saying that she was too drunk to make it without help. But once they got to the door, Melissa noticed that Erica was able to retrieve her keys from her purse and unlock the door with no problem. Erica asked them to come in and began showing them around the apartment. After about 10 minutes, Melissa said that Erica and BJ both claimed Erica's purse was missing. Melissa had just seen Erica with her purse when they'd entered the apartment. BJ demanded that Melissa and Todd search for it. While they were searching, BJ pulled out a gun and began waving it around. Melissa reported that he made statements about people that had been there before and had tried to steal from him. He also said that he was, quote, doing the world a justice by ridding the earth of bad people, unquote. 
He threatened them, saying that if we ripped him off, he would kill us the same way he killed those other people, Melissa testified. Melissa believed she was able to calm BJ down enough to put the gun away, because unlike them, she was sober and kept her wits about her. Miraculously, BJ then found the purse in a location that Melissa knew had already been searched. She believed that the whole thing had been a game, but didn't know to what purpose. She said BJ wanted to show them his gun, and also Erica's gun, the 357, later identified to be the murder weapon. They made their exit as soon as possible, and later heard about the Seifert's arrest for the murder. At that time, she came forward with her story. As it so closely matched the former scenario that only investigators in the Seifert's had knowledge of, detectives believed Melissa's account and considered her and her friend very lucky to have escaped with their lives. Once detectives learned from Erica that the body parts had been thrown in a dumpster in Delaware, they contacted the waste management company in that state to try and track down the remains. They were in luck, as Delaware used a system that could pinpoint precisely where a certain dumpster's contents had been sent to at their landfill. After a day of searching the landfill, police recovered the torso and both arms of Joshua Ford. Two bullets fired from the 357 Magnum were found in his torso. Only the left leg of Jeannie Crutchley was found, so her cause of death was never determined. Prosecutors, knowing that four rounds had been fired from the gun, theorized that Josh had been shot twice in the torso and once in the head. The last bullet had been fired at Jeannie, but had missed and gone through the wall in the bathroom. They believed Jeannie was then stabbed and killed by Erica. The pair was tried separately, and as we saw in the Texas cadet murder case, when couples who murder together are tried separately, they began pointing the finger at each other to save themselves. BJ claimed that he had no part in the murders. He maintained that he was asleep in the car while Erica killed the couple. His only crime was helping to cover it up, he said. I dismembered them, he admitted in court. That was my idea. His strategy worked. Jurors said that they could not determine, beyond a reasonable doubt, that he had been the one to shoot Josh Ford. He was acquitted of all charges in his murder and only convicted of second-degree murder in Jeannie Crutchley's death. He was sentenced to 38 years in prison. Erica Seifert went on trial next. She came off as more, well, nutty to the jury. Her obsession with Hooter's memorabilia, her fondness for reptiles, and her unremorseful attitude did her no favors. This coupled with the facts of the case, that the murder weapon was found in her possession and identified as her personal weapon, the photos of her wearing the dead man's ring, the tattoo commemorating Jeannie Crutchley's murder, as claimed by the prosecution, all worked against her in court. She had admitted at her pre-polygraph interview to using cocaine and ecstasy several times a week, and that she and her husband had planned to carry out a two-week burglary crime spree in Ocean City that Memorial Day holiday. They thought of themselves as a modern-day Bonnie and Clyde, she said. In her testimony, she characterized B.J. Seifert as a controlling and abusive husband. She said that the only gift he'd ever given her was the 357 Magnum. After a year of marriage, he told her he wanted children. She soon became pregnant. Then four months into the pregnancy, she claimed, B.J. demanded she get an abortion and threatened, quote, or I'm going to dig it out of you, unquote. She said he admitted to her that he never wanted a child, 
but just wanted to see how far she would go for him. About the murders, she told investigators that she ordered her husband to shoot the couple after they'd locked themselves in the bathroom. She said she'd done so because she knew he wanted to kill someone. Two weeks earlier, she claimed he told her he wanted to kill her family, including her parents, both sets of grandparents, and a wealthy aunt. This would leave Erica the sole beneficiary to the family's fortune. The plan was for BJ to leave the country after the murders, and once she had the money, they would meet in Argentina. None of this seemed to sway the jury as to her guilt. After four hours of deliberation, they found her guilty of the first-degree murder of Joshua Ford and the second-degree murder of Martha Marjean Crutchley. She was later sentenced to life plus 20 years. Benjamin Seifert filed and was granted a divorce from Erica in 2010. They have both filed appeals. BJ's last appeal was exhausted in 2010. He will be eligible for parole in 2021. Erica Seifert's appeals have also been rejected by the court. Her first chance for a parole hearing will be in 2024. This case has gone down in Maryland's history as one of the most brutal and senseless crimes to occur in that state. There seemed to be absolutely no motivation for the crime beyond the thrill the perpetrators received in committing it. They came from well-to-do families, had prior educational and military accomplishments, were running a successful business, and had found love with each other. Benjamin and Erica Seifert are the type of perpetrators that baffle those who follow true crime. They appeared to have everything going for them, and from the outside, seem just like you or me. Erica could have been that woman that works out next to you at the gym. BJ could be that guy you've had a beer with. And you would never suspect them of such a cold, brutal, murderous act. But somehow, they chose to cross the line into murder for no justifiable reason. Perhaps out of boredom, or because they were mentally unhinged, or simply out of pure evil. In any case, two perfectly innocent and lovely people lost their lives at the whim of two monstrous individuals. That will do it for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime, and we'll also wrap up this series. It's time once again for our Patreon shoutouts and our drawing for the monthly prize pack. I want to thank our newest Patreon supporters who have pledged to the podcast at the highest level. Our new $10 per month patrons are Kathy Mooney, Alexander Thomas, and Christy Anderley who increased to the $10 level at the end of September, and I missed announcing it. Thank you, Kathy, Alexander, and Christy. You guys rock. Every month I send a prize pack filled with unique items only real true crime aficionados will appreciate. To be eligible, you simply have to be a Patreon supporter at any level. You can do so at patreon.com slash onceuponacrime. This month, one lucky patron will receive the book, Cooking with a Serial Killer, Recipes from Dorothea Puente. Don't worry, they're real recipes, nothing gross. Dorothea Puente was a serial killer, but she was also a great cook. This book contains a collection of her recipes, as well as some transcripts from calls with the author of the book, from the prison where she is serving a life sentence, and also pictures and letters. This month's winner will also receive the serial killer coloring book and some OUAC swag. And the winner is Greg Goucher from Charlotte, Michigan. Congratulations, Greg. That prize pack will be mailed out to you shortly. Thanks so much for being a Patreon supporter. I'll be back with you next week with a brand new series for December, and I hope you'll all join me then. 
Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Until next time, be good to one another. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.